So go ahead and take your Bible, if you have one, and flip to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. This morning we're going to talk about new humanity. That's what I'm calling our message here, new humanity. And we're going to look at the rest of chapter 5 as we make our way through Romans. So let's read chapter 5, verse 12 and onward, and then we will pray and look at our text. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death has spread to all men, because all have sinned. By the way, the Apostle Paul is going to go on a rabbit trail. Some of your Bibles may have uh, a line there, or it's like a dot, dot, dot. He, He says his thought, and then he's like, well, hold on, I have more to say before I finish that. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted where there, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if through the trespass of one man many died, then how much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many? The gift is not like the result that came through the one who sinned, for the judgment from one sin led to condemnation. But the free gift, which came after many trespasses, leads to justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through him, then how much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? Therefore, just as through the trespass of one man came condemnation for all men, so through the righteous act of one came justification of life for all men. For just as, though, just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. But the law entered so that sin might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded much more. So that just as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you that these are your words. We thank you that we can gather together like this today. We, we have assembled as your assembly in order to be warmed by the fire of your word. So help us, Holy Spirit, to understand so that we might serve the Lord Jesus Christ this week. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're continuing our look at the book of Romans, the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. And as I mentioned last week, we have... We have basically reached the next great section of his argument, the the great section of the book wherein basically Paul takes the jam-packed theology of Romans 1 through 4 and he starts to apply it. So all these big concepts about um, Christ being of David and, and all this sin problem and what Jesus came to do to deal with the sin problem and how the law doesn't make you right, but you have to believe in Jesus because his faithfulness is how we get our faith and our faithfulness. And so he, he takes all these ideas and now he's going to expand on them. And if you remember last week, we saw the top of the mountain. Um, while we were sinners, Christ died. There is victory in Jesus. While we were in a state of sin and enmity, Christ died and reconciled us to him. So his obedience all the way to the cross and at the cross, I should add, that's going to be mentioned in our section here as well, was in fact the basis of our being declared in the right in the courtroom of God. When you're in the courtroom of God, you have no boast. You have no defense. There, there is no defense for the sinner 
The only defense you can have is to have Jesus on your legal team, and then he will square it away. And that's how we should view justification. So his death is an atonement, and this atonement is what saves. It's the heart of salvation, the cross of Christ. Central to the atonement was the fact that God reconciled us to himself, and this was not a reward for good behavior. It was not a reward for good behavior, but an act of grace because all there ever was was bad behavior. So if you have a pool of bad behavior and, and, and that's all you have, well, that's the only thing salvation can do. Jesus again said, I came to call the sick, not the righteous. By the way, it's those, the Pharisees, who thought they were healthy were actually the sickest among them, for they were in denial. So we're dead in sin, Christ saves us. That's the point. So today we're going to talk about the difference between Adam and Christ and what those two covenantal heads did for their respective people. Those in Adam, those in Christ. So Paul highlights the absolute degeneracy and dereliction of human evil, and not just human evil for the sake of human evil, but human evil in the context of how God intends to rescue uh, the world through it. How does God rescue sinners? So he's already shown in chapter 4, if you remember, that God created a worldwide family out of, out of Abraham's seed. That was the whole promise to Abraham. You know, chapter 4 spends the entire time dealing with that. But now he's actually going to focus on a worldwide humanity. He, he already talked about Abraham's family or those in Christ. Now he's going to talk about, well, actually, there's this worldwide humanity that Christ intends to make. So I'm just going to tell you the main point of the passage now, and then we'll come back to it. His main point is this. The combination of sin, law, or lawlessness, we should say, and death which is said to reign as a king. He uses that language here. It reigns. The combination of sin, lawlessness, and death, which is said to reign like a king, is now overshadowed, conquered, and supplanted by the grace, peace, and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who now reigns over all. So we have death, Satan, sin, and death reigning. Jesus comes, conquers that, overshadows it, supplants it, takes care of it, and now Christ reigns, righteousness reigns, peace is to reign. That's, that's the gospel. That's what it does. So that's the meaning of the text. Let's summarize our passage. In verse, in verse 12, we find that sin was introduced into the world through Adam, and as a result, death was enthroned over all men because all men not only participate in the sin of Adam, the sins of Adam, they are arrested by the looming authority of death, which has now infiltrated the seed of Adam. Sin entered into Adam, and now the whole human race is plunged into death. That's his point. Adam invited something other than God to take the lead, and here sin is personified as having been established as the Lord of the world. So think of it th this way. When Paul says, you know, sin reigned and death reigned, and it's a, it's a personification. It's as if these intangible things became tangible. Adam forsook it, and in his forsaking, he established death as a lord, death as a ruler. And it just so happens, he says, that no one is exempt from its authority. 
No one in the world gets to get out of the whole, you know, what is it, 10 out of 10 people die every year? <laughs> 10 out of 10 people die annually. Um, you don't get to fudge that statistic. Death is the reality. Adam allowed it to, to come into the world, and here we are. So men and women are born, men and women die. Only one person in history has been exempt from this, and we know who that is. So Paul introduces a thought only to immediately swerve to a rabid trail, and he further, further explains the issue at hand. Uh, a Jewish listener might hear this and think, oh, hold on a second, but what about that time between Adam in history? I'll go this way since you're looking at me. Adam, timelines have to go left to right. <laughs> what about that time between Adam and Moses? So Moses got the law here. Adam was in the garden here. We have Jesus here. We know that. But what about that time between Adam and Moses when God gave the Torah, the law, to Moses? What, how do you explain that whole thing there? Well, that's a great question. He says in verse 13 that sin was indeed in the world because death was in the world. Even though the transgressions against a not yet given Torah were not real. It's this idea of sinning against um, Paul says later, I didn't know what it meant to covet unless I knew thou shalt not covet. When you have an ignorance of light, it's hard to make out what it is. What does it look like? We don't know. So we need the light of it. So death reigned from Adam to Moses. So clearly there was sin. There was something that happened in the garden that pushed death, not only as a Lord, but pushed it into the seed of Adam, the children of Adam, even before the law came. So Torah or not, Paul says here in verse 14, that death prevails because the commandment in the garden was broken. What did God promise Adam and Eve? We just went over this with, with our family. What is, what is the promise that, uh, that God gave Adam had Adam disobeyed? Do you remember, Nathan? <laughs> what was the promise? When God said to Adam, do not eat of that tree, if you eat of that tree, what will happen? You will surely die. You will surely die. So Adam broke the commandment. Adam's sin is the garden in the garden is, is different than the sinning of the man who lived in ancient Mesopotamia out in the bush before the time of Moses. What Adam had done was different. But either way, the point is death was large and in charge. Death was the reality that happened. So he says that Adam's the type. Christ is the antitype. We're now at verse 15, where the apostle says that Christ's gift of grace is different than the trespass of Adam. Christ's gift of grace is different than the trespass of Adam. There is a difference between the content and the consequences of Adam and Christ. Adam had done this. Christ has done this. Adam trespassed the command in the garden, and thus many died, or all, all died, but Christ demonstrates the inexorable nature of grace in that it is a free gift of a new creation, the remaking of a man into the image and likeness of Christ, who is now the new fountainhead of a new humanity. So Adam plunged the world into sin. Christ came to restore the world. That's his point. So he says in verse 16 that the free gift is distinguishable from what Adam had done. We can delineate between what Adam had done and what Christ has done, and we should. 
The disobedience of Adam led to the judgment of condemnation. The free gift of Christ, in contrast, which came after a worldwide stockpile of sin, leads to justification. Adam brings condemnation. The free gift of Christ brings justification. And the question is, which is better or more efficacious? Is Adam's sin so bad that Christ could not possibly outdo it? Which is, which is better or more efficacious? Adam brought cursing. Christ brought blessing. God gives the gift without any condition because those who receive it are never in a position to receive it. We, he has to give it to us because we couldn't even get it anyway. Um, we'll talk about this in Romans 9, but it's this idea of people think salvation Oh, you're, you're, in the, in, you're in the ocean and you're drowning and God reaches his hand down and you just, oh, aren't you great? You just reached up and you grabbed his hand and it was this team effort. Yay, team Jesus, team me and Jesus. And that's how people view salvation as if we were even had the ability to do that. And I think it was R.C. Sproul that said years ago, well, no, actually we were dead at the bottom of the ocean. There was no reaching up. You were completely dead in your sins. In fact, it's not like he just gave his hand to you. He reached down, yanked you up, pulled you onto the, the dry land, gave you breath in your lungs, and now you're born again. That's the difference. So we're never in a position to receive it, nor could we ever reciprocate it back to God. It's not like we're in a position where somehow we could just make up for the grace of God. Oh, that was such a great gift you gave me, Lord. Thank you. I guess I'll just pay you back somehow. And it could be the most righteous thing. But you can't pay him back. And that's the point. You're not supposed to. So in other words, what Paul's saying is the devastation of grace is far more than the devastation of sin. The devastation of grace is far more than the devastation of sin. Sin wrecks things, it destroys families, it destroys individuals, it can destroy churches. Sin is devastating. But guess what? The grace of God wrecks it even more. The grace of God does far more damage in the positive sense than the negativity of sin. So Adam's trespass was deadly and fatal. The free gift of Christ was free and gracious. And we'll come back to this later. There's another contrast, if you have your Bible there, in verse 17. Adam's trespass invited death to reign as king of the world. If that is seen as an audacious thing, how much more audacious is the thought of those who receive the grace of God and the free gift of righteousness, they're actually going to reign in the world through the lordship of Christ. So death reigns, ah, you think that's devastating. What about now? In Christ, Christ reigns, we reign, we reign in righteousness. And a side note here. You think Satan is the God of the world. Someone might ask that, that question. Is he the God of this world? And you will get a plethora of answers. But the Greek does not say such a thing. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says that Satan has, is the God of this quote-unquote, world, and he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. But the word is actually aeon in Greek. It's not cosmos. Satan is not the god of the cosmos, the world. Your translations, most translations, miss it. 
Satan is the god of this age. That's the proper translation of the word. He's the god of this age. So, in other words, Satan's temptation of Adam in the garden and then Adam's subsequent transgression brought Satan, sin, and death to the throne of the world and installed them as king. That's Paul's argument. When Adam sinned, he said, okay, Satan sinned, death, welcome, this unholy trinity, and you may now rule over us. That's what Adam's sin was. And yet here, Paul is very, very clear. They've been ousted, dethroned, defanged, and now the new humanity in Christ rules and reigns in life. And please hear me. Victory is always the heartbeat of the church because victory is always the heartbeat of God. Victory is always the heartbeat of the church. And the reason is because victory is the heartbeat of God. He will always be victorious. He must reign until his enemies are put under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign. God is victorious. There's no possible way for Adam's sin to have been so devastating that it could have been irreconcilable or irreparable. It's impossible because God is a God of victory. Paul continues in verse 18. Adam's sin led to condemnation. Jesus' faithfulness led to justification. Again, Christ outshines Adam each and every turn. The finality, power, and glory that is accomplished through Jesus, the second Adam, is now and is going to, in history, far surpass the damage done by the first Adam. That's his argument. The, the power of Christ, the, the finality of Christ, his glory, all of that will always outshine the damage done that Adam, ha that Adam had done. Just look, as an aside, you look at the world around you right now, and we've lost our collective minds. And no, not only have we lost it, we have buried it in the sand and forgot where we put it. And no one cares to go looking anymore. So we just look at each other with drool running down our face. Oh, I guess we'll have to wear the mask. <laughs> Where's your brain? <laughs> Where's your mind? The world has been groping around in darkness for so long. And the saddest thing about it is, what has the church done? The church has made a confession. Adam's sin is far too great. Adam's sin is far too, it's too great. We can't do anything about it. As if Christ isn't the second Adam who is Lord. So one man's disobedience shipwrecked the human race because the many were made sinners. Verse 19. Even so, the obedience of Jesus will save the human race by making them righteous and just. So the law of God, he says in verse 20 there, entered for several reasons, not least because, as he says there, God intends for sin to increase in that it needs to be shown for what it really is, treason. So think of the law coming in. It's like, it's like we're in a dark room and the law of God is this massive 20,000 lumen uh, you know, you've seen the deer flashlights, the big ones that you can shine and see for, you know, you can see Canada from Michigan practically. But God brings the law into the darkness and it's meant to show the darkness how futile and dumb it is. It's meant to reveal and exacerbate its own uh, false attempts at being Lord. So the law comes in like that. Think of it this way. Why would God want the law to increase sin? This sounds terrible, but it, that's not what he's saying. 
Think of it this way, the greater the detriment, the greater the glory. The greater the detriment, the greater the glory. This is not because God is sadistic and he just likes to watch children fall down and scrape their knee. Ha ha, look at you. That is not our Lord. Think of it as light shining in the darkness. God puts the light of the law of God in the darkness to magnify the problem of darkness, to show it what it really is. And the result is grace abounding. So he concludes this section in verse 21 by affirming that sin ruled and sin ruled and reigned in death as malevolent, malevolent despots, and yet sin has been toppled to make way for grace to reign through, through righteousness and justice in this new heavens and new earth, this new heavens and new earth that was issued through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, not Caesar. So what can we take from this passage? What is it we can glean? If Christ is going to deal with sin, then we need to know where it is it came from, and not just where it came from, but how God intends to actually deal with it. Here Paul makes it obvious. Sin was enthroned when Adam forsook his responsibility to work and keep the garden. <laughs> I said this in Africa to, to our friends there when I was doing some teaching, and um, Sometimes their response is a little more evocative. <laughs> so you may clap if you want, but you don't have to. Um, but it's this idea of when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent slithers along and strolls up and says, hey, I got a different thing to sell you. Kind of a terrible car salesman type situation. And instead of squashing the serpent's head, Adam could have taken the shovel that he had designed Maybe he didn't have time to design it. I'm actually of the opinion that they were created on day six. Day seven is when they sinned. I don't think they lived in the garden a thousand years. But I could, well, that's a different sermon. But Adam could have taken the shovel and said, wow, a talking serpent telling lies. And ended it right there. He could have. He could have taken the shovel and said, no, I'm not buying what you're selling today. But instead of squashing the serpent's head, he listened to the serpent's words, and thus the world was plunged into darkness. And yet, we too were there with Adam in the garden as our federal head, our covenantal representative. We too were there with Adam, sinning with Adam, doing the same thing Adam had done. That's us. Adam's our father. Our father sinned. Period. And please don't make, by the way, a quick aside, don't make the mistake of assuming that had you been there, you would have done the right thing. Oh, if I would have been there, I would have taken my highly advanced flamethrower and ended the serpent's life, as fun as that may have been. Uh, had you and I been there, we may very well had put together some fun signs with Sharpies and poster board and cheered on the rebellion. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. Sin, sin, sin. That would have been us. So the theology of covenant headship is all over the Bible. Paul picks it up here and he applies it to Adam and humanity. Adam is the head of humanity. Everything started with him. All of his progeny stems from Adam and Eve. They were the first parents. And Paul takes it as history, not some metaphor, as we should too. So Paul says, though, that we have this different person who came along. 
His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He, was, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he's also the second Adam. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. So Adam here, Adam sinned, sinned um, he sinned at a tree, right? He took the forbidden fruit. He took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he wasn't supposed to have. So Adam sinned at a tree. Well, guess what Jesus did? Christ obeyed at a tree, the cross. There's the distinction. So Adam is this old creation, the old created order. But Jesus comes and he's the new creation. He's the new heavens and new earth. He's the renewed humanity. So if sin was ever going to be dealt with, another Adam needed to come along, another Adam needed to rehearse the story of Adam in order to get it right the second time. By the way, if you ever read in Mark chapter 1, not in my notes, just something that came to mind. In Mark chapter 1, we have this unique... Um, Mark always uses the language of immediately, and, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. He's really getting to the point. And one of the things that Jesus had done after his baptism, immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness where he was with the beasts. We should be thinking of Adam. We should be thinking of Adam. He's anointed for a task. The first thing he does is go. Remember Adam named the animals? All the dinosaurs, all the fun creatures. Adam named them. But Adam sinned. And then we have other issues. <laughs> So that's exactly what Jesus had done. Jesus had done it right this time. Not, now note that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit in her womb. And this is huge for Christian theology for several reasons, but one is for this reason. This meant that Jesus was of Adam in the sense that he was a human being, but he wasn't of Adam in the sense that he was not of Joseph's seed. So he was a human being, but not in the same way the train wreck of Adam's progeny had become. He was of Adam and yet not of Adam, the only unique person who could possibly do what he needed to do. So salvation could only happen this way. He needed to be human in order to rescue humanity. He had to enter into the plight. But he also, he couldn't be human and only human in the normal sense, because he'd be in Adam and thus he'd be in sin. That's why the, the virgin story, birth story is so remarkable. He had to be in Adam and not in Adam in order to deal with those in Adam so they can get him out of being in Adam, if that makes sense. But Christ is not, was not in sin, therefore he was the perfect candidate to get, to get the job done. He needed to be both God and man. Man owed it to God, couldn't pay it. God didn't owe it, could only pay it. That's the plan of salvation. Now, the language used here is pointed and it's incisive for a reason. We need to view Jesus being the second Adam in terms of Jesus walking into the house that the devil had been playing in, graffiti on the wall, all of it. Jesus walks into the house, he evicts the devil, contrary to any CDC recommendation, and he starts this renovation process. He walks into the house, throws the devil out by his collar, and says, this is mine now. And the house is the world. And you should know that that's basically the point of Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus, if you recall, 
He has this showdown with the blaspheming Pharisees and religious leaders. And Jesus says this, But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's Matthew 12, 28 and 29. So rather than failing to deal with the strong man serpent like Adam had failed to do, Jesus, the second Adam, does the job. He ties up the strong man, kicks him out of the house, pillages his stuff, and reclaims this territory, this world, for the kingdom of Christ. Jesus takes it back from the serpent. What Adam gave the serpent, Jesus took it back. Now, I said this earlier, but I want to make sure it's clear because Christians are very, very confused by this today. If you, if you ask your average Christian, average church-going <clears throat> mask-wearing Christian, who the God of this world is? Who is the God of this world? What might they say? Most will not say Jesus. Most will not. They will say Satan. And they will cite 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Again, not cosmos, aeon. He's the God of this age. Paul's making a theological point about the old created order and versus the new created order here. It's terribly unbiblical. First year, first day of class, Greek students can figure this out. Satan was the God of the old age, which marked humanity from Adam onward. He was. The house was his because Adam gave him the keys. That's how it worked. But since Christ's death and resurrection, we are now in the new age of the new creation and the new heavens and new earth. We are in a different aeon. Satan is not the god of this world. He is no longer the god of this age. That ended in AD 70. Jesus is the established god of this age. He is the established god of this world. He is the world's rightful lord and king. That's what Paul's emphasizing here. In fact, if you remember, Jesus told Caiaphas, the high priest, that he himself would know that Christ was enthroned at the right hand of power when Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed on Caiaphas's watch. So the age to come had come in the death and resurrection of Christ. Death reigned from the day Adam sinned all the way to the day Christ died and was raised. Death had reigned. Death was the Lord. Satan was its God. That's, that's the plan. When Christ was raised, the kingdom of God was dropped on the earth, and now it grows and grows through the work of the church. So Paul makes it clear that, if, that there is a humanity in Adam, that's the old humanity, and then there's this new humanity, this humanity that's in Christ, the second Adam. So there, there is no dividing up political parties here, um, Many people want to make the world out to be Democrat versus Republican, as if Paul makes that distinction. You know, you've heard this. There are two types of people in the world, and then there's always nuances there. There's Republican and Democrat. Well, if that's the way you want to divvy it up, I suggest you may be contributing to the problem. There, there is no such paltry trivialities are nothing in the face of King Jesus. The way you divvy up humanity, you divvy up the world, we might as well do it the way Paul says, old humanity, new humanity. That's it. And the reason we should go with that is because that's covenant theology 101. 
Those in Adam, those in Christ, period. That's the biblical way to see it. So God's plan for the world, Paul says, is, is the rescue of it. God's plan for the world is the rescue of it. History is simply the restoration of humanity by the grace of God. What's historiographers always debate, what's the meaning of history, yada, 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 all these debates on history. Well, it's simple. History is the restoration of humanity by the grace of God. That's the point of it. That's the meaning of history. And Paul takes a hard, the hard theology of Romans 1 through 4, and he sets it out on the table here, and he says, look, this is how this is going to go. This is how it's going to go. If you want the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you want the gospel, then you have to take the whole gospel, not part of it. Not, oh, Jesus died for me. Isn't that great? I get to go to heaven someday. No, that's like a crumb of the meal on the table. The meal on the table is the grand renova renovation of the world. That's what Christ wants to do. So God is making new clay pots all over the world. He is the creator whose opulent artistry is everywhere in the world. Where there are human beings, there is art. Wherever there are human beings, there is art. Some of it's bad because they're in Adam, but some of it's great because we're in Christ. But God desires to remake the world, and he has chosen to do so through a new human race. So don't miss the connection here. Wherever there are humans, God desires to remake them. They have fallen away in rebellion, and by God's grace, he brings them back. That's the mission. That's the mission. And what is this mark of a new humanity? Think about it. What's the mark of a new humanity? How do we know that a new humanity has been put in place? Is it because people go to church or don't? Is it because people have a flashy membership card, a church membership card in your wallet next to your credit card and driver's license? No, not at all. What's the mark of a new humanity? I'll tell you what it is. The power of sin and death has been broken and conquered, and the result is they live differently. They live differently. They pursue justice and righteousness in every area of life. That is what marks them out. Baptized in Christ, cleaned up, sent out for the world mission. And this is based on the fact that Christ is greater than Adam. Christ is greater than Adam, but why is he greater? Aside from the fact that he's Lord and Savior, that's the obvious answer we might come to. But Paul, Paul doesn't say that Christ simply came to undo this small, seemingly insignificant thing that Adam messed up. So it's not that, you know, Adam is hanging sheetrock and uh, got to get the drywall just right. And Adam accidentally punches a hole in the drywall. And then Jesus says, oh, it's cool. I got it. He pulls out the putty and fixes it. it that is not what we're talking about here. Christ outshines and outperforms what is what. Um, what Adam had failed to do. So let me give you a quick word picture, a thought, a thought experiment. Let's pretend there's a, a small cup of water here in my hand. Small cup of water. The cup is the created order, all right? The cup is the created order, and the water that's in it is the righteousness and grace of God, what God had given when he created the world in Genesis 1 and 2, okay? That's, that's the word picture. Adam was supposed to take the cup and drink of it. Okay? He was supposed to, to drink in the grace of God, to live in harmony with God. And it was a cup that would never be empty. 
But instead of doing that, he haphazardly grabs the cup in a fit of lust and dumps it on the ground. Now the righteousness of God is on the ground. He steps on it. He maligns it. The cup is now empty. But what does Christ, the second Adam, do with the cup? Does he merely replace what Adam had dumped out? Did he just sort of put you know, the, the picture of God's grace and he just, oh, that's okay, I got it, I'll do that. No, here's, what, here's the emphasis in the passage. He takes all the water and the oceans in the world and he crashes it down in the small cup. He doesn't just refill it. Oops, Adam, I'm sorry, I'll fix it. No, he floods it. He takes all the ocean water in the world into this little, you know, 10-ounce cup and drops it on the cup. That's the work of Christ and the abundant work of Christ. He floods it with his loving kindness. Jesus didn't merely replace what had been lost. He consumes it entirely. And the way that he inundates the created order with his glory is by sending a man in the likeness of human flesh to come and die for those sinners in Adam. God came in the flesh and those in Adam murdered him. God came in the flesh and those in Adam murdered him. And yet that's the paradox. When we look to Christ on the cross, what do you see when you look to the cross? We ought to look at condemnation, our condemnation. We should look at our sin, our guilt, our dereliction, our adultery, our lying, our gossip, status tyranny. We should look at the abortion holocaust. We should look at um, medical tyranny, pornography, child, uh, all these different versions of trafficking, perverseness. We look at the cross and we see all of that there. When we look at the cross, we are supposed to see all the evil in the world placed on the sun. Satan, sin, and death did its worst that Good Friday. That's all it could do. What could Satan, sin, and death possibly do to Jesus? The only thing it could ever do, kill him. And that's it. They, Satan, sin, and death, the, the, they hoisted Christ up on the cross in this bloody act of rebellion, rejection, and repudiation. And, and by the way, we have to stop thinking that the problem of evil is somehow left to the philosophers to chew on. Oh, how do we deal with it? If God is good, how does he let you know, kids in Africa starve? How, if God is good, how does he do this? No, the problem of evil is actually rather simple. Evil is not sovereign and it will be crushed by the God of peace. But the Christian response is not to confess the problem of evil and stop there. Rather, it's to confess that evil ultimately has a great problem, the resurrected Christ. So Christ on the cross was the greatest act of Satan, sin, and death, which had reigned through history. And that the great paradox is that this last-ditch effort of teeth-grinding and consternation and gotchaism was actually the undoing of Satan, sin, and death. The trap had been sprung. Go ahead, take this second Adam out. You can destroy him on the cross. We destroyed him. That's awesome, great. Well, why was this a problem for Satan, sin, and death? Because the cross was the enthronement. That was the point of it all. The day the revolution began, to borrow the book title. Evil had hoisted Christ up on a tree but that very tree became the tree of life that the second Adam had enjoined himself to. 
See, evil had hoisted Christ up on the cross, laughing and sneering and scoffing at him. But in the end, it was God who had the last laugh because the cross became the end of death's rule. And out of this death, out of Christ's vindication and resurrection, came a new humanity of which you and I are a part of. Eve, if you remember, was formed out of the side of Adam. If you remember Christ on the cross, where did the soldier stab Christ and the side and what came out, John tells us, the blood in the water. The blood in the water, the new bride, the new Eve, the new humanity came out of Christ. That's Adam 2.0. That's the second Adam, King Jesus, the second Adam. This was the beginning of the end of death's reign as God established Christ as the head of a new kingdom and a new humanity. And here we are now. Here we are now, enlisted to live differently, enlisted to make that known. Let's pray. Father, you've been gracious and good in sending your Son. We're thankful that we have been enjoined to him, that we are in Christ by faith, uh, by grace through faith, the word says. So we rejoice in that today. We're thankful for this text and thankful that you could... Uh, to give wisdom to the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago to write this. And, and, and we're grateful that we've been invited into this new humanity. And we ask and pray that you would uh, uh, challenge us by your spirit so that we can be about the business of inviting others into this new humanity. And Father, as we partake of this meal and partake of communion together, may you be glorified. May you receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.